Well, congratulations, you made it through a day. I see most of you are still here, or you've been replaced by people who look like you. So, you know, uh, I'm sure you had all kinds of reactions. I mean, for some of you, it might have been one of these kind of days. For others, not so much. And then maybe a little bit of everything. The mind, what a mysterious thing. Here's the Buddha talking about the nature of the mind. He said, this mind, O monks, is luminous, but it is corrupted by adventitious defilements. The uninstructed worldling does not understand this as it really is. Therefore, for her, there is, no, there is no mental development. Uninstructed worldling. He's making the, the, the kind of a blunt case here that without any training of the mind, you're at the mercy of your conditioning. Life becomes a series of knee-jerk reactions Habitual patterns playing out over and over again. Just a vicious cycle. Now he also goes on to say, on the hopeful side, he goes on to say this. This mind, O monks, is luminous, but it is free from adventitious defilements. The instructed noble disciple understands this as it really is. Therefore, for her... There is mental development. So this instructed noble disciple, that's you. A noble disciple is someone who's devoting time and energy in an earnest fashion to the cultivation of their heart and mind. And you'll notice in those phrases he also talked about this luminous mind. And that comes up a number of times in his discourses. And it's probably worth a little, a short little discussion here. Sometimes it's referred to as the deep mind, a mind that's constant, that's, that's bright. But it's not the kind of light that you ordinarily think of. The, the mind, by its, its, its very nature, it, it's not dark, it's not murky, it's not dull, it's not turbulent. But its essential character is a, a kind of brightness, a, a high resolution. And it's filled with a, with a shining, open, non-conceptual awareness. A non-conceptual intelligence. Deep tranquility. The natural mind knows. It has this quality of knowing. And it's tranquil. And what's really, uh, what's really wonderful, when you get to, when you get to uh, more, and more and more acquainted with this natural mind, is that it's filled with love and compassion. It's colored with it like you would drop a dye into uh, a glass of water. And what's also wonderful about this is you don't have to construct this natural mind. It's there all the time. It's ever-present. And with just a little bit of training... 
a little bit of training of our nervous system, we can fall there more and more of the time, just naturally, automatically. And I'm really not telling you anything new here. You all know this natural, beautiful mind. And those times when you're relaxed, when you're feeling safe, you're feeling connected in some way to a friend, a loved one, to nature. You know, what kind of mind, what kind of heart mind? When I use the word mind, I'm also meaning heart with it. What kind of, what kind of heart mind is, is there? What's the tenor of that heart mind? Well, in, under those conditions, it's probably peaceful. There's a sensibility of love and compassion. It's a mind that's open, malleable, flexible, bright, it's alert. So this isn't new. It happens naturally. We don't have to create this from scratch. But if this is your natural mind, why aren't you in touch with it more and more of the time or all the time? Why can't you feel this kind of essence, this quiet, tranquil, bright, loving essence more of the time? And the reason being, and you know this by experience, is that there are these energies that kind of sweep through the heart and mind that temporarily, at least, um, make it hard to have any contact with with this natural mind, this heart mind. So in those phrases, the, 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 the Buddha uh, used, the, used the words adventitious defilements. Adventitious meaning accidental or, extrin- or ec- extrinsic uh, to, to the natural mind. So it's, ju- it's important to remember that these, when these, these particular energies that sweep through, they're not inherent in the mind. They are like weather patterns moving past it's like you know if you know you have a rogue uncle and aunt very loving you know they they're out for your best interest they're they like to protect you uh, but they show up unannounced Uh, they're very high maintenance they kind of make a mess of the place Uh, they sometimes wreck things although they're very well-meaning you know, they mess with your computer. They go on sites that give you a virus. They use the telephone to call all over the world. But underneath it all, they have your well-being at heart. You know, they do. They really do. And you know they love you and that they care for you and they want to do things for you. So after they leave, you know, you, might, you could thank the gods that they're not permanent residents. You know, that they're only visiting just adventitious defilements to the peace and harmony of your home. I want to read you a poem uh, by Rumi and it's called A Goal Kneels G-O-A-L and that's an old English word for obstacle. Okay, And a a couple other things before I read read the poem. There's a word in there you'll hear Joseph's and it's not someone's name. It's a, it's a cloth cloak of many colors worn by women. And there's also a reference to the cave of seven sleepers. And that's an old Christian myth whereby 
the myth goes that around the year 250, there were these seven uh, Christians practicing their religion. The Romans found them out. They were due in court the next day. And that was, there was never a good outcome. Um, so they went up to this cave, went to the back part of this cave. They gave away all their possessions, went up into this cave, to the back of the cave, and they practiced, they prayed, they did their centering prayer, whatever, whatever they were doing, and they fell asleep. Well, somebody tipped off the Romans to this, and so who needs a trial? They went up there and quietly sealed up the cave while they were in the, some back part of it sleeping. So as the myth goes... Um, it was 150 years, 125 years later, there was a shepherd looking for a place, um, a safe place for his sheep. And so he sees this bricked up. And so he unbricks it. And lo and behold, these guys wake up. They think they've only been sleeping for a day, but it's 125 years. So that's the cave of seven sleepers, the poem. The inner being of a human, of a human being is a jungle. Sometimes wolves dominate. Sometimes wild hogs. You ever have that feeling today? (laughs) Be wary when you breathe. At one moment, gentle, generous qualities, like Joseph's, pass from one nature to another. The next moment, vicious qualities move in hidden ways. Wisdom slips for a while into an ox. A restless, recalcitrant horse suddenly becomes obedient and smooth-gated. A bear begins to dance. A goal kneels. An obstacle kneels. Human consciousness goes into a dog, and the dog becomes a shepherd or a hunter. In the cave of the seven sleepers, even the dogs were seekers. At every moment, a new species rises in the chest. Now a demon, now an angel, now a wild animal. There are also those in this amazing jungle who can absorb you into their own surrender. If you have to stalk and steal something, steal from them. So everything's available when we sit quietly and pay attention. The whole creation is revealed. This poem suggests that the mythological archetypal narratives are woven right into our body and are likely to appear at any time if we're paying attention. And so Rumi's sensibilities in this poem were very much in line with the Buddha who said on numerous occasions that everything can be revealed from the direct experience of this fathom-long body just staying home here. And that was from his, from his personal experience. His years of practice, of staying with and directly connecting with his emotions, his thoughts, and body sensations. You know, everything was revealed to him. But as Rumi's poem points out, uh, not all that arises out of this soup of consciousness is pleasant. At every moment, a new species rises in the chest, now a demon, now an angel, now a wild animal. We just don't know. We can't predict. And we can't control it. You probably found that out today. Think of all the energies that came forward in your heart-mind today. 
I mean, where do they come from? I mean, they come somewhere out of this great mystery. Thoughts, emotions, body sensations. How many different kinds did you have today? And the, the intensity of these energies can be so powerful sometimes that, and, and, and they can be so, um, and, and they can vary so quickly from one thing to the other that you can temporarily lose your perspective, your view of things. You, you can become completely identified, lost. Everyone has this experience. These mind states that we sometimes identify with and that are so painful, these adventitious visitors, the Buddha also called the hindrances. And there's five broad categories of these hindrances. There's the wanting energies, greed, desire. There's the not wanting energies, aversion. There's the restless energies. There's the dull, sleepy energies. And there's the doubting energies. And sometimes it seems like we have all of these at once. It's just like a multiple hindrance attack. You know, wait a minute, I'm sleepy. No, I'm restless. Oh my God, why am I doing this? You know. But that's part of our practice. But this is where the rubber meets the road. Your relationship to these energies is central to the cultivation of a fruitful spiritual practice. And I'll go on to say it's central to uh, uh, a happy, fulfilled life. I can't emphasize this enough. Learning to work with and learning to make peace with these energies affects everything. The Pali word for, for hindrance is nivarana. In its literal translation is covering. It's also translated as uh, that which hinders clear seeing. That which hinders clear seeing. And you certainly know when you're in the throes of greed or anger, you're often not seeing very clearly. But this covering also implies transparency, which is lucky for us. These energies are not as solid as they sometimes seem. If you can bring us a, a patient, spacious, kindly mindfulness to bear, these energies are often found to be quite ethereal. They're insubstantial. They're changing all the time. They're not solid. They're energies we have to deal with. But before I get into a little more depth, um, I actually want to speak in their defense. Yes, Your Honor, these energies are innocent. They're not merely some bad, horrible force trying to destroy everyone. They have at their core a noble purpose. the well-being and the survival of the individual. Your Honor, these energies have helped the, the human race be successful to the tune of approaching 7 billion people. So I just 
I, I just need to defend them. I've been th thinking about these energies. And they are noble at heart. And when, I, when, I, when we get into each of these a little bit, I'll, I'll try to remember to, um, to just put in a good word for them. But it's paradoxical. Because in the end, it doesn't matter if these energies have some well-meaning intention to them, some protection or survival at, our, uh, at their best interests, like our, our rogue uncle and aunt who come to visit. Because these energies may ultimately destroy the human race. So it behooves us to learn about them develop a skillful relationship with them. We'll start with the wanting energies, greed. That's always a good one. But the, and these energies have helped us survive by, by gathering for us um, the things that will sustain us. They've, they've helped us continue the bloodline. If there wasn't a little want and lust in grandpa and grandma, you might not be here. And, it, and, and greed brings us more food. We stockpile. We learn how to stockpile food. It brings us more comfort. It brings us things for a longer life. There, there's much that can be wholesome about desire also. Sometimes people think, well, Buddhism, it's like they're against desire. That's not it. We want to we explore the nuance of desire. In a wholesome desire, if someone's working in, uh, in the medical field and they're a researcher and they're trying and they have the wholesome desire to eradicate a particular childhood disease, okay. Or if somebody has the, the wanting of equality of opportunity for everyone. Or the wanting of freedom and safety for all. Or the wanting of their heart to completely open. Or the wanting of a, of a healthy, wholesome connection. There's a lot of good there. When the object of our desire, our greed comes along, we really want it. Whether it's food, another person, a new technological gizmo, or that great meditation you had back in 97. You know, <laughs> we want it. So these wanting energies, one characteristic of them, you'll notice, you'll always notice, they're always reaching out somewhere, grabbing on, holding on, you know, like a Pac-Man. Remember that old game years ago? Let's do a little exercise. So be comfortable. Now... I want you to kind of churn up your wanting mind. I want you to think of something you really want. Really, really want. It can be X-rated. What, what, whatever it is. So just spend a moment, go inside. And conjure up the image of something you want. Really picture, be it a food or an iPad or a person or whatever. Really let your mind kind of go there, roam around. See it, feel it, smell it, taste it, 
almost touch it. Now, stay there for another moment. Make sure that you it's really something you want. Not something you want to get rid of, something you want. Now invite the mind to come back home, to release the grip on the object of your lust. And feel what that's like in the body, if you're able. Notice its characteristics. Does it have a temperature? Is it warm? Cool? Is it peaceful, agitated? Where is it in the body? Where is this wanting? Are there images associated with it? Just resting your attention on the direct experience withdrawn from the object itself. Not trying to change it, just accepting it as it is having some interest in this quality of wanting, becoming intimate with it. What's this like? Okay. Those of you who come and studied with us and sat with us know we use this acronym a lot, RAIN where in working with particular phenomena that comes up, first if we recognize it, okay, it's wanting. Uh, can we accept it? Can we allow it to be there, to flower, without pushing or pulling on it? And as Hugh said last night, can we bring some interest to it? Another the, the A is the allowing, the accepting, the I might be interest. It's also Intimacy. Can we really become intimate with it? Because remember, at its, at its heart, this wanting is trying to do something for us. And then the N is non-identification, which if we recognize, which immediately changes our relationship to whatever the phenomena is, if we can accept it and allow it, become interested in it, investigate it, become intimate. Most of the time, we won't identify with it. So it kind of takes care of itself. So wanting's, wanting's a very powerful uh, energy. Aversion is another very powerful set of forces. It's complementary to wanting. It's kind of the opposite, not wanting. The I don't want it mind. I'll read you a little, a little poem that exemplifies some, some aversion. 
My grandmother had a serious gas problem. We only saw her on Sunday. She'd sit down to dinner and she'd have gas. She was very heavy, 80 years old. Wore this large glass brooch. That's what you noticed most in addition to the gas. She'd just let it go as food was being served. She'd let it go loud in bursts, spaced about a minute apart. She'd let it go four or five times as we reached for the potatoes, poured the gravy, and cut the meat. Nobody ever said anything, especially me. I was six years old. Only my grandmother spoke. After four or five blasts, she would say in an offhand way, I will bury you all. I didn't like that. First the farting and then saying that. It happened every Sunday. She was my father's mother. Every, su- every Sunday it was death and gas <laughs> and mashed potatoes and gravy and that big glass brooch. Those Sunday dinners would always end with apple pie and ice cream and a big argument about something or other. My grandmother finally running out the door and taking the red train back to Pasadena, the place stinking for an hour, and my father walking about, fanning a newspaper in the air and saying, it's all that damn sauerkraut she eats. So there's some aversion throughout that. Um, That's by Charles Bukowski. Um, You know, aversion on all levels, the child, grandma, the dad, the whole scene. But both wanting and aversion are similar in the sense that, that they can't leave the object of wanting or not wanting alone. The energies either grasp or clutch at something they want, or they try to push it away. So you could say these energies are a little sticky. They adhere to things out there. They're either grasping or pushing. Aversion, that heart-mind state, is, is at its heart is trying to get rid of something we don't want or an undesirable situation. The unwanted bodily sensation or pain or sounds or smells, in the, as in the case of this, or difficult emotions or the difficult person that keeps popping up in our life. We try to change the situation. And there's nothing wrong with trying to change situations. Or we try to suppress it or deny it or destroy it or condemn it. But you can also see the survival capacity in aversion. It pushes away. It repels the unwanted or the dangerous. And, it, and, and under the umbrella of aversion is anger. And anger can protect us. In November, I took a, I took a trip <coughs> Uh, to Europe and part of the trip I was in Ireland and I was there to um, to do some teaching but I was also there to just explore the countryside and you know and look for my relatives um, see if I could find them my grandfather was born there <coughs> I didn't find my ancestors and yeah, more than one person when I was asking around uh, you know they'd say 
And I remember this one woman, she looked at me and she said, you sure you want to find your ancestors, your relatives? I said, well, what if you found them? Then you're stuck with them. You know? <laughs> but I didn't find them. But I, I took a hike one day. It was at, in, in an area called the Burren, which is on the kind of west central part of uh, Ireland. And it's this, it's a desolate but eerily beautiful place. And I went to a place called uh, Cahircamoun. I'm sure I didn't say it right. Um, and it's an ancient ruin, several thousand years old. And it's one of these three ring forts where really all that's left is these stone walls. And there are hundreds of them in Ireland. And it's out in the middle of nowhere. And what I was struck with was the question, why would anybody want to live here? What the heck were they doing up here? They had set up this, this encampment. There's a cliff behind them. And I looked around and I walked around. There's no water up there. They had to go down, traverse down the cliff uh, to a stream, bring the water back up. And not only that, in the burn, a lot of the land is limestone. And it, as you know, it rains in Ireland. And so it erodes in these ruts. In certain areas, if, if you're not careful, you could break your, you know, break your ankle. So how did they even do livestock? You know, what, what were they doing up there? And I, and, it, and I look inside the enclosure, and it seemed like, well, maybe they had filled in these ruts. So they had these small enclosures, pasture, maybe where they grew some, grew some vegetables. Uh, but it was just inhospitable. It was a little, a little bit on a, on a high spot. Um, and so the wind was horrible. And there they were up there with no water, a dangerous place if their livestock got out, they were going to hurt themselves. Um, but they could see. They could see in all these directions and they were protected behind them. They were driven to live there out of fear. Otherwise, why would they be up there? There's a lot of real, really fertile, beautiful places in Ireland. They weren't anywhere near the ocean or a sizable river where they could fish. Um, they, were, they were up there making a go of it, driven by fear. And fear is a driving force for survival. Psychobiologically, it's in there deep. And it's no wonder we spend a considerable amount of time coming to or trying to come to a healthy relationship with our fear. It's deep. And we work with it in the same way. We recognize it. We allow it. Spend some time with it. Become intimate with it. It's the same deal. We're treating these different energies the same way. Whether it's fear, guilt, or anger. Try to come to it with the same open acceptance and kindness. And I want to restate, because behind it, they're, tr they're trying to protect us in some way may be a little misguided and cause us a lot of grief, but at their core, they're on our side, these energies. But it's important for the, for the survival of our species that we get a better handle on this fear because it drives us in certain, in certain ways. On another part of my trip, 
um, actually before I went to Ireland, I went to Poland and spent a week at Auschwitz at a retreat. Some of you might have been on this retreat. It's been going on for 15 years. The Zen peacemakers um, we go to Auschwitz and we sit and we really feel into the energy and the environment there. And um, we meditate and reflect and have ceremonies. And I mean, how did this happen? Estimated between 1.2 and 1.5 million people were killed in this one camp. And we also know historically that genocide is not specific uh, to Auschwitz or any of these other death camps in World War II. All you got to do is have to just go out and walk around in these towns. How many Native Americans do you see? What happened to them? But I'd like to make a simple statement, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. Hindrances, if unnoticed and left to run wild, have the capacity to bring us genocide, death camps, killing fields, you name it. And fear always seems to be a big player if we track back the conditions that drove these events in history. Driving the unconscious. We, you and me, under the right conditions, we're capable of anything. If we can, out of fear, out of feelings of separation, come to see another individual or another group as distinctly other, that gives us, uh, we're, on, we're, we're on a path. And if we see the other as not only different, but as different and inferior, not only inferior, but different, inferior, and evil, that's an ancient, well-traveled road. It's a road to dehumanizing others. The road that can ultimately lead in the most horrific things imaginable. And it often starts with just a little scapegoating. Oh, see that group over there? They're doing this and that and the other thing. It's their fault that I suffer. I'm worried about them. In fact, they scare me. There's something about them. I, they're evil. Off we go. Ordinary decent folk can get on board if the conditions are right. So we need to be vigilant about this pro- propensity for, for creating others or the othering of others. The othering of others. And of course, there's a survival base for that too. My tribe, your tribe, we're going to fight over resources. But in working our practice, we can smell out the beginnings of that separation, of that demarcation and dehumanization. Oh yeah, Glenn Beck, what a moron, you know. He's evil. I'm better than him. I know more than he does. Or on the other hand, oh, that Obama. Good God, he's some kind of socialist. He's not even an American citizen. He's, I think he's the Antichrist, you know. That's the beginning of dehumanization, whatever your bent is. Thank <laughs> you.
Now, I'm not a Pollyanna about this. There are people doing harmful things all over the world. Their actions and plans need to be outed, seen, and resisted to the best of our ability. And, and, the challenge of our spiritual practice is to recognize that these same characteristics that we're identifying in the world, we've got them inside. Yes, we are all Gandhis. And when the conditions turn, we can be Hitler's. There's a poem, I'll read parts of it. Um, uh, you mostly heard it by Thich Nhat Hanh. But it fits into this othering, this capacity to make others and move from there. Call me by my true names. Do not say that I'll depart tomorrow because even today I still arrive. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, in order to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that are alive. I am the mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of the river, and I am the bird which, when spring comes, arrives in time to eat the mayfly. I'm the frog swimming happily in the clear pond, and I'm also the grass, the grass snake who, approaching in silence, feeds itself on the frog. I'm the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks, and I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the 12-year-old girl refugee on a small boat who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate, and I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom in all walks of life. My pain is like a river of tears, so full it fills the four oceans. Please call me by my true names so I can hear all my cries and laughs at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true names so I can wake up and so the door of my heart can be left open, the door of compassion. And Thich Nhat Hanh reflect, reflected later on this poem that he wrote, and he says, when you first learn of something like that, you get angry at the pirate. You naturally take the side of the girl. As you look more deeply, you will see it differently. If you take the side of the little girl, then it is easy. You only have to take a gun and shoot the pirate. But we cannot do that. In my meditation, I saw that if I had been born in the village of the pirate and raised in the same conditions as he was, there is a great likelihood that I would have become a pirate. I saw that many babies are born along the Gulf of Siam, hundreds every day, and if we educators, social workers, politicians, and others do not do something about the situation, in 25 years, a number of them will become sea pirates. That is certain. If you or I were born today in those fishing villages, we may become sea pirates in 25 years. If you take a gun and shoot the pirate, all of us are to some extent responsible for this state of affairs. It's an interesting reflection. So when we sit here and recognize fear and we feel it, 
when we watch it move without reacting, we're really doing ourselves a great service. We're reducing the grip of fear. We're coming to understand it. And we're, do, we're reducing our own suffering. And on the larger scale, we're creating momentum in the other direction, away from hatred and paranoia by becoming intimate and maybe not masters of our fear, but, but understanding it at deeper levels. So aversion in its severe form is, is anger, and when it gets really out of hand, it becomes rage. And shame and guilt are also under the, this umbrella of, of aversion. They're sitting right there with fear. They, have the, they, have the same, they all have the same qualities of pulling away from our experience, contracting away from whatever happens to be in play in our life at that time. It's the, I don't want it mind. You know, at work, your, uh, your boss may tick you off or, or maybe even on retreat. Somebody is walking too noisily for your taste. They come, into the, they come into the hall and they have a gate you don't particularly like. And you didn't like them from the first moment you laid eyes on them. And now you can just tell how ego-driven they are and you're absolutely right, you know. They're, they're a bad person. They're different. They're other. It's so easy to start tumbling down the path. Let's do an exercise, another short exercise, and I'll put a little tw- a different, different twist on it. But we'll start now by bringing to mind maybe a person you have some difficulty with or, or something you're really averse to. You know, I don't want you to go into a trauma reaction, but just something in the moderate range. I know there's people in, you know, a few people in my life that I just, I don't know what it is. I just, my skin crawls, you know, and I try to work with it, and uh, it's always a challenge. So bring up one of those individuals or situations. Just for, we'll just do this for a moment. But I want to highlight a different aspect. So let your mind go there. Whether it's anger, fear, shame, guilt. Let it it develop a little bit. Still, Still on the object. I don't want it. I don't like it. Yuck. Now again, withdraw the mind back to your direct experience. Feel the sensations in the body. And see if you can just rest there with that gentle kindness, acceptance, exploring. A 
aversion is like this. Now, staying with that aversive constellation of, of feelings, experience, we're going to open the camera angle. And in addition to feeling that aversion, feel the space around you in the room. Aversion's still going on. There's still that reaction, not wanting. But the aversion is not filling the whole phenomenological field. There is always space if we can be aware of it. Spaciousness. Aversion can get very big and strong. But we can hold it in a really big pasture. Give it plenty of space to run its energy down not pushing on it, pulling. In fact, we can, we, can, we can be mindful of the aversive reaction and still sense other lives being lived, whole solar systems being born and dying. And there's your aversion, still doing its thing, all being known by this infinite awareness. Just rest there. Feel the spaciousness. Not ignoring the qualities of the aversion. Maybe toggling back and forth if that works for you. Okay. So aversion. Sloth and torpor is a third category. Tired or lazy feeling with little or no energy. You feel uninspired. And it seems like it can be innocuous. And for survival, let's think about this, for survival, it may offer a low or non-existent profile for us. Kind of, we can kind of somnambulate with the herd, not being noticed. We're just kind of dulled out. Sloth and torpor could be could be caused by a life a little bit out of balance or just plain tiredness. Or there's calm and quiet in the mind, but there's not alertness. Or it could be resistance to an unpleasant emotion of some sort. Maybe avoiding feelings of loneliness or sorrow, emptiness, loss of control, despair, whatever. I remember I was in a down period in my life. It was one of those years where everything happened. Both my parents died, uh, got divorced. My, in 14 months, and all this happened in 14 months, my, my business mentor killed himself. My best female friend had was dying slowly and died uh, of cancer. All this, was, all this was going on. So a friend of mine, actually a benefactor, friend, friend, unquote. So he, in his attempt to cheer me up, he brings me this comic. 
And he says, oh, this is what you need. It's plunge into the depth of despair. And on the front, there's this guy looking out the window. It's, ra- it's raining, and he's kind of slumped. He's got his arms crossed. And he's saying to his wife, who's just kind of numbed out in the chair, he says, see if there's anything on. And she cuts him right off. She says, why bother? You know, so there's some kind of attempt to cheer me up. <laughs> this is an R. Crumb comic, and he's a seriously disturbed person who's probably doing the best he can. He's a good, good artist. But actually, I found this is worth some money. There's not many of these. It's a valuable comic, so I came out ahead. So not being alive to what's happening right now is the ground for sloth and torpor. In meditation, it can manifest as sleepiness. In life, it can be kind of waiting for life to begin and, it, and, and waiting for the next jolt of stimulus. Our culture and media are so ever-present, it's very easy to, be, to become an experience junkie or a stimulus junkie. And so as we learn to meditate, this is a very subtle practice that we're doing. It takes time to get acclimated to the subtleties of experience and not just doze off in between the big stimuli. You know? So this is, this is a very subtle practice. And we treat it the same way, sloth and torpor. We bring our attention to it. What might need some attention here? The fourth category, category of these covering energies is restlessness and worry. Oh, we all know about this. But it's also important to species survival, if you think about it. If you're restless and you're worrying and you're planning and you're kind of scanning for threat and you're planning stuff out so you have enough acorns for the winter or whatever you need, there might be some advantage to you in the survival game but as you know, there's a, there's a real cost to high anxiety. You know, it just wears us out. This hyper-agitated mind. You know, you're trying to sit at home and you sit down and after a few minutes you have to pop up because you know there's a dust bunny behind the dresser and you just have to get it. Or in, or in another case, and I won't say who, during, during the month of December, you're checking the internet every hour or so wondering whether the Red Sox are involved in some big trade. You know, I don't know who would be doing things like that. But there's a restlessness in that. You know? It's like I always use the image of the over-caffeinated squirrel jumping from one thing to the next. You know? And the last covering energy is skeptical doubt. And doubt has helped us survive also, if you think about it. Doubt gives us the ability not to believe every cockamamie thing that somebody tells us. We're going we're to hold back. We're going to doubt. And it's designed to help us survive. But in spiritual practice, it can kind of erode things. And it, be, and it can be hard to spot because it's so darn rational at times. It can seem harmless, but it can paralyze the practice. It just can kind of come around back. We don't even notice it. You might have thoughts like, 
gee, I, I wonder if I'm wasting my time doing this meditation stuff. You know, I can be pretty productive and I've got these projects I'm working on and, you know, I don't know about that. Or then it can get a little more juice in it. Like, these techniques are bogus. These people up here are nuts. You know, they're clueless. How do they even feed themselves? You know? <laughs> or then you could take it on yourself. Oh, this stuff, this may work for some people. You know, Newsweek says it's good, but it's not for me. I can't do this. It's impossible. So the plug gets pulled. There's no energy. And then there's no benefit. When I first started practicing, I, I thought these various difficult energies that we touched on tonight, uh, they th- that they should be shoved aside in some way because, you know, that my meditation wasn't going to be any good. That these, that these energies were interfering and needed to be eliminated if I was going to get somewhere in this kind of spiritual quest. I, I just had this idea that these energies were something different than my meditation. So it was this huge breakthrough when I began to, to see and frame these energies as an important part of the practice. And there's new levels of understanding and appreciating them as I, as I go on through the years. And these challenging energies aren't some anomaly specific to your messed up mind. You know, everybody has these energies. All the stuff that you've gone through today. And they require kindness, acceptance, not repression, not suppression. And in some sense, we can look at them as educational energies. They have things that they can teach us. If we can meet them with a, with a soft acceptance rather than resistance or hatred, aversion. So the razor's edge of practice is right there with these energies that visit us to experience them deeply but not tumble in to an identification with them. To feel it all directly but not thrash around and and grasp and push and shove on everything. It's a challenge but it's imminently doable. As the Buddha often said to his students, I would not ask you to do this if it wasn't possible. And it requires this willingness, this this courage to show up again and again, to patiently and kindly receive these energies, to feel them in the body, to explore the emotions that are present, to pause with them and not be in such a big hurry to do something with them or shove them under the rug. So this, this, these days that we have together, if you end up spending a goodly portion of your time exploring these energies, 
And if you can summon up some patience and kindness and lovingly learn to recognize them and explore them, accept them, you'll, you will serve yourself immensely. And by extension, you will serve all your fellow beings. So I'll end with just a few lines from the Tao Te Ching. Nothing in the world is as soft and yielding as water. Yet in dissolving the hard and inflexible, nothing can surpass it. The soft overcomes the hard. The gentle overcomes the rigid. Everyone knows this is true, but few can put it into practice. So this is our challenge. Patience, slow, steady, kind. Thanks for your attention. Let's just sit together for just a moment. Nothing in the world is as soft and yielding as water. Yet in dissolving the hard and inflexible, nothing can surpass it. The soft overcomes the hard. The gentle overcomes the rigid. Everyone knows this is true. But few can put it into practice. There'll be a half hour for walking and then we'll convene here.